Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Cecil Yilmaz. Today's program is uh, one of our favorite themes on the podcast, the theme of migration. And specifically, we're looking at the waves of largely uh, Muslim migration into the Ottoman Empire during the 19th and early 20th centuries. Now, there are a lot of ways we can approach this topic. And in past and future episodes, we do adopt various approaches. Uh, today, we're speaking with a historian who indeed applies these many approaches to her research. And we'll be focusing on a conceptual history of migration that really hones in on this figure of the muhajir. It's a term we're going to define in just a second. But first, let me introduce our guest, Ella Fratantuono. Ella, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sachil. Ella's actually been on the podcast before with us. She's never had the chance to present her own research. But uh, to a little background on Ella Fratantuono, she's an assistant professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Her dissertation submitted just last year at Michigan State University, focused on the history of migrants who came to the Ottoman Empire from the 19th century onward. She's currently working on revising that into a book project. And today, as I've said, our conversation will really focus on the conceptual undergirding of this project in terms of how to think about the figure of the migrant in the Ottoman Empire, to borrow the phrase of Thomas Nile in his recent work, and to understand some of the institutional and legal specificities of the experience of migration in the Ottoman Empire during this period when really a global revolution, so to speak, in migration is taking place. So Ella, let's situate our listeners before getting into some of these details. Of course, migration was occurring within and in and out of the Ottoman Empire from its earliest history. But during the 19th century, as a result of specific political conflicts, we really see an uptick uh, in certain migration. Can you, tell, can you give us a brief overview of some of the major waves of migration into the Ottoman Empire? Uh, from the 19th century onward, especially the ones you've researched for your own work? Sure. So I think, uh, again, listeners to the podcast will know that this is a sort of dramatic change in the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, and that likewise, this is really a sort of global moment of increased migration. But what we can really think about in looking at these major waves are our two major structural changes or sort of ongoing events, the increased presence of the Russian state in areas like the Crimean Peninsula and the Caucasus and sort of growing nationalist movements in the Balkans as mm -hmm. being major forces of, of movement throughout the period. And particularly, I guess, my work has focused on, on migration after 1850, after the Crimean War in particular. To give you a sense of numbers and groups, Immediately following the Crimean War, so, so roughly 1856 to 1862, we see the movement of about 200,000 Crimean Tatars, mm -hmm. 50,000 Nogai Tatars in 1859. Mm -hmm. At the same time, as the Russian Empire expands and finishes its sort of decade-long decades -long conflict in the Caucasus, we see from 1860 to roughly 1864, 1865, the movement of upwards of 1.2 million individuals from the Caucasus who are yeah. often called uh, Circassians. Right. Then, after the 1877 to 1878 war, we see major migrations coming from, again, the Caucasus, as well as from the, the Balkans. Mm -hmm. And during that time, again, you see maybe as many as, as 1.5 million individuals coming from just the Balkans, some of whom had been settled in that area only 
uh, a decade and a half prior. Right. So people who had already been expelled from, like, let's say, the Caucasus during a slightly earlier period, we find them coming into the Ottoman Empire from ter- territories in the Balkan that the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans that the Ottoman Empire is losing uh, in these uh, conflicts, such as the Russo-Ottoman War. Precisely. Yeah, we see um, a lot of the major settlement in the 1860s was into uh, Rumeli. And so, yes, when the 1877 to 1878 war finishes up, those individuals are likewise moved along with some of the longer-term residents Mm -hmm. of the area. Uh, Another episode would be uh, after 1898, again, maybe as many as 90,000 individuals from Crete. Right. And then, of course, uh, as we move into the 20th century, we have, you know, half million coming from the Balkans after the Balkan Wars. Right, 1912, 1913. Precisely, yeah. And, and so all told, if you look at this period from uh, 1850s, 1856 to, to 1913, I've seen estimates ranging from 5 million to 7 million right. people, which is uh, obviously why these, these migrations have prompted a very rich historical literature because they simply are rapidly changing and massively changing the demographics of the Ottoman Empire throughout the period. Right, and those numbers alone indicate the massive scale. And of course, there's a lot of complications in actually counting because of like double migration kind of, as you described, or how many people survive the journey, how many eventually go back. These are all issues that historians continue to try to address in the historiography. But, you know, what's important for our listeners to realize is that we're talking about many different regions from the area surrounding the contracting Ottoman Empire with many different uh, ethno-linguistic communities, uh, the Caucasus alone, full of dozens of them, as, as as well as all these other parts of the Balkans and, as you said, Crete and other areas. This is truly a a massive scale of migration of a very heterogeneous population of people who share little more than the fact that almost all of them were Muslim. Yeah, and I think uh, even as we begin to talk about it, about it and begin to talk about the state response, that very heterogeneity is is part of how the Ottoman Empire or or officials within the Ottoman Empire are attempting to understand these movements and understand how to best take advantage of these movements or, or at least to create situations of stability in mm-hmm. response to um, major movement or major displacement. Right. So Ella, we are basically talking about a massive change in the course of almost a half a century. And I'm sure there are many different ways and approaches to study this type of migration and motion. I'm really curious about how, what, what's your perspective? How did you study this? And how are you planning to frame this in your uh, book project? Yeah, it's, it's a huge topic. Uh, and I'm, I'm frequently confronted with the fact that it is a huge topic, uh, deserving of many different sort of methodologies and, and really granular studies. And that's actually not what I'm trying to do, is, mm-hmm. uh, is develop this kind of granular study that is is very important to our understanding of the experience of migrants themselves uh, of these various waves. Instead, my project is a study of what I see as an emerging and evolving migration and settlement regime. Uh, What I mean by regime here is the sort of cumulative policies, projects, uh, infrastructures, Mm -hmm. and institutions that are meant to control mobility into, within, and out of the empire. Mm-hmm. And so my project spans actually 
1850 to 1910, uh, so a couple years prior to the Crimean War and then to these few years prior to the, to the beginning of the Balkan mm-hmm. Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason for that is because, as I said, I'm interested in this kind of emergence of a migration regime, and I think it's at this particular moment that you begin to see officials defining or conceiving of migration as an issue that is best organized from the center. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1860, you see that, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, the emergence of the Migration Commission uh, or Migrants Commission. And what I think we can see here, again, it's, it's a period spanning the Tanzimat through the Hamidian periods. It's this period of centralization in, in many capacities within the Ottoman Empire. So this is one example of a, of a changing relationship between state and subject. Mm-hmm. And migrants become a sign of this or, or particularly useful in kind of assessing this change because they could be used in in ways such as reorganizing space on uh, imperial or regional or local levels. The extension of resources um, could be used to kind of create loyalty between migrants and the central state. And of course, again, the kind of creation of a broad infrastructure from the center, but as a network into the provinces is another one of the ways in which we can think about the increasing presence of state institutions in people's daily mm-hmm. lives. I also, would you agree in that context that this is kind of also the, 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 the element of migrants, the Mahajir is also kind of like a defining element of the empire, Ottoman Empire as a modern empire in the sense that in a particular historical context, and if you use like the term, the age of empire, if you borrow it from Habsbaum, the empire is like t- a territorially expanding political context, whereas for the Ottoman context, it's actually shrinking and shrinking, but population-wise, it's increasing and increasing. So there's sort of like a paradox there. Yeah, that's a very interesting way of framing it. Uh, particularly because that kind of the shrinking territory of the empire matched with this influx of migrants mm-hmm. is creating all sorts of, of problems and changes, again, on an empire-wide scale, but certainly on a local scale as, mm-hmm. as the state goes about uh, trying to find places for people to settle. And as migrants themselves and other individuals kind of begin to articulate claims over right. this shrinking availability of particularly arable land. Right, like imperial bureaucrats now like face-to-face to invent or become creative about their governmental capacities to basically deal with the problem. Right, and this is something that I try to point out in some of my work, that it's really interesting to look at an empire that is in some ways expanding yet territorially contracting because their settlement frontier, as it were, I mean, that's how I conceptualize it, is kind of within the borders. So it's a little harder as a colonial power to be colonizing territory within your own borders than to be kind of sending some of those processes overseas, as was the case for most European empires. So given that this Ottoman experience of the age of migration does have its specificities, let's get into the specific vocabulary and practices a little bit further and specifically reintroduce this term that we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast of muhajir. Of course, many scholars astutely point out that the word muhajir uh, and its sort of various etymological roots are there with us from the earliest periods of Islamic history. Um, Indeed, the Islamic calendar is called the Hijri calendar, 
um, which refers to the migration of the prophet and his followers from Mecca to Medina. And those people who went with him were called the Muhajirun, which is literally the same word that was used in the 19th century to describe migrants coming from the Caucasus and Balkans and elsewhere. And so many scholars have said very, have said very, various many things about this, but in short, the vocabulary for this new phenomenon that we witness in the 19th, in the 19th century is arising from the sort of indigenous vocabulary of the Ottoman Empire uh, and its own uh, historical experience and the, the longer uh, experience of, of Islamic history. And so it's actually when trying to translate this word muhajir into English that we run into all of these sorts of tensions in the historiography. Are they migrants? Are they immigrants? Are they refugees? How do we do this? So, you know, Ella, if you could sum it up for us, what are some of the different ways that people have conceptualized this term? And, you know, give us a little preview of the one that you prefer. Okay, well, I, I mean, I think historians have, yeah, have rightly struggled with this, uh, in part because of the insufficiency of, of these labels generally. I mean, this kind of distinction between migrant and refugee, whether you're looking at migrations in the 19th century or, or, or prior to that, or contemporary migrations, yeah. we see as a very sort of tenuous distinction uh, or frequently tenuous distinction in terms of how people are traveling, in terms of why they are traveling. Um, and it really is sort of a rights-based response. And so that's mm -hmm. why I think we can see historians using interchangeably these terms of immigrant and emigrant and uh, sometimes refugee and sometimes even sort of anachronistically an uh, asylum seeker or, right. or internally displaced person. And especially yeah. these last three terms, of course, have very coherent legal meanings, even though they don't really apply to the, to the past necessarily. But in terms of like a sort of historiography of, of the study of the Muhajir, we see several different sort of modes of, of, of studying. So one would be to kind of engage with the reasons why people were, were leaving, again, the Russian Empire or leaving the Balkans was it because they were sort of forced? Was this overall a forced migration in which we would think of refugees? Or can we understand sort of fluctuating policies? This is something you see in the Crimean Peninsula, um, sort of a change from uh, encouraging emigration to actually trying to prevent emigration uh, in the 1860s. We also see officials and migrants and historians kind of mobilizing the term muhajir and recognizing its sort of religious overtones to provide a framework for why they were leaving or the directionality of their movement, right? In this case, we would see maybe on the one hand some sort of older historiography suggesting that the framing of, of migration as, as that of the hijra is very much a sign of the kind of fanatical identity of these Muslim migrants. Others might suggest that, that the use of the word muhajir is instead sort of a empowering gesture by these migrants. And, and again, it's just kind of a lending a directionality to their movement into mm -hmm. the Dar al-Islam. Other perspectives, I think, instead of looking at those reasons for emigration are instead fixated, uh, this is sort of my, more my field, uh, are interested in sort of politics of acceptance uh, and the actual, again, kind of policies that the Ottoman state is developing, where you might see, uh, I think, Bashak Kale and, and Kamal Karpat have talked about how we see from the 1860s through to the early 20th century 
a kind of shift from a very liberal and open uh, policy of acceptance to an increasingly narrow and religiously defined tendency to accept exclusively Muslim migrants. Right. And then there are also these tendencies, again, to kind of by emphasizing that religious identity to argue that these migrants and the demographic change they caused led as well to the sort of Islamization or potentially even Turkification of Anatolia and, and sort of narrate a very easy assimilation of sort of Muslim migrants as Muslims. There has been some really useful analysis instead of, of return migration, of circular migration, of ongoing uh, use of the word muhajir not as a route to assimilation, but instead as a route to kind of a cohering identity within the Ottoman state. I think this is, a, is a, again, a useful perspective. And more recently, Issa Blumi has, in his, in his work, Ottoman Refugees, sort of suggested that what we really need to do is kind of think about the ways in which settlement of migrants created new local nodes of political power. And actually, Oktay Ozel does this as well, that we can see migrants using the term muhajir or using the identity of muhajir to accrue certain resources and to be active in developing administration. You know, it's striking in, you know, in some of the most more loose discussion of the experience of muhajirs and particularly like when we're trying to translate into English, how, and I think you point this out in your own work, how maybe an inclination to use the term refugee, for example, would appeal to certain sensibilities about how refugees are supposed to be viewed today in the present. Refugee emphasizing that perhaps they're victims of a sort of expulsion, which indeed many of them were, but sort of like a, a, it's a more empathetic term perhaps than migrant, which sounds more neutral. But as you're saying here, and as I think we'll uh, discuss for the remainder of this podcast, it's very important to look at how this term actually functioned, both socially within the context of Ottoman society, but of course within an administrative and legal apparatus. We'll get to that in just a second, but first we'll have a little music break and be right back with Ella Fratantuono talking about a conceptual history of migration and the Muhajir in the Ottoman Empire. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Sechil Yilmaz here with Ella Fratantuono talking about her research on migration in the Ottoman Empire. We've already alluded to a lot of great uh, works, and so I want to remind our listeners that if you want to learn more about this topic, you can find uh, the publication of Ella Fratantuono as well as other relevant scholars on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. So Ella, you're actually making a very provocative and compelling argument about how to conceptualize the figure of the Muhajir in the Ottoman Empire, which is to say that in order to understand what the word signifies, we actually have to understand the institutional and administrative context within which this word is being sort of deployed uh, and reconfigured over the final decades of the Ottoman Empire's history. And a lot of that labor, at least from the state side, takes place through the Muhajirin Commission, or 
its various iterations as it transforms with subsequent waves of migration. So let's talk about that commission, its origins, and the various iterations it did come to take. Sure. So again, um, if we're looking at this moment in the post-Crimean War era, we see a sudden influx of individuals. And it's in response to this influx of individuals that we eventually, again, see the kind of creation or conception of the muhajir or the migrant as an issue that that needs a central administrative structure. Uh, so if you look uh, in that period between the end of the, the Crimean War and 1860, which is significant as the kind of starting date of the Muhajir and Kinsiono, we see a tendency towards sort of ad hoc responses to the beginnings of these mass migrations. And by ad hoc, I mean also um, concentrated in particular localities where migrants tended to arrive or where it was intended to place migrants. So for example, in uh, like 1857 or 1858, you see sort of a long set of instructions sent to the governor of Silistra, encouraging him to take steps X, Y, and Z to respond to the migrant crisis there. You also have a very large number of migrants accruing in Istanbul, and really the main institutions responsible for dealing with immigrants in Istanbul were the Shehre Manedi and the Zabtie, uh, and to some extent the Tijaret Nezareti, or the trade ministry, and the police, and the kind of new entity responsible for municipal governance within Istanbul. So these were, again, sort of individual entities that were responsible for dealing with migrants on an ad hoc or, or disaggregated way. In 1859, the uh, Istanbul municipality asks for assistance, basically asks for more resources, asks for more personnel in order to deal with uh, the existing migrants as well as sort of this anticipated uh, 40,000 to 50,000 more individuals coming from the Caucasus. Instead of uh, just deploying, deploying those resources to the Shehre Hemaneri, to, to the uh, municipal government, instead the Ottoman state decides to kind of create a new entity, again, this migration commission. And Chris, you're right. When we look at the Migration Commissioner, when, you know, I sort of use this clunky expression of, of migration administration. And the reason for that is because the Migration Commission sort of is, or migration administration generally, is a series of, of institutions that kind of reappear and disappear and are reorganized and renamed throughout the period from, again, 1850 really through to the end of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, those changes, uh, those institutional changes are to some extent in response to, again, kind of a emergence and then disappearance of, of moments of refugee crisis, I guess, or migrant crisis. So I argue this is a major change, that, that this change from an ad hoc administration to a centralized administration is something new and therefore something perhaps important. And I guess what I, I see as important is the kind of tactical measures that the state can now envision or that officials can now envision in terms of dealing with this new migrant population. What I mean by that is that actual ideals about settlement, for example, that migrants should be allotted a certain amount of land doesn't really change all that much throughout the period. But having a central administration means suddenly you are attempting to 
collect information about migrants in terms of population numbers, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of class, uh, skill set, and using that kind of information to, first of all, uh, reduce expenditures, but second of all, to kind of carefully and increasingly carefully place migrants throughout the empire. In terms of what this does for us conceptually, or, or what revisiting this kind of administrative entity or the Ottoman archives does in terms of conceptual definitions of the migrant, is again, when we look at this word muhajir, most of the time we think of it as meaning Muslim and meaning something akin to forced migrant or refugee. But when you actually look at the way the, the term is used, again, that is typical. That is what we expect to find very frequently Muslim migrants uh, frequently coming under uh, conditions of, of great distress and oftentimes with very sort of horrific results in terms of, of loss of life and sickness. Nevertheless, when we actually look again at the Ottoman documents, we see individuals who of, of sort of varying religions and ethnicities, uh, Jews, Armenians, Germans, we see even the word muhajir used to describe uh, individuals who were basically acting as colonists. Prior to the uh, emergence of the muhajir in Kinsiono, we had uh, in 1857 the regulations on migrant migration and settlement, which was this invitation issued to basically anybody who wanted to come from uh, North America or South America or, or Western Europe to come as long as they had a certain amount of capital and were willing to sort of pledge loyalty to the Ottoman state, to the Ottoman sultan, uh, regardless of creed, they were allowed to come and, and should likewise be given uh, land to settle on. And even though, as far as I can tell, the actual regulations didn't use the word muhajir, state officials, when they sort of began to process these individuals, did use the word muhajir. So then uh, yeah, I mean, that's a sort of radically different notion of what it means to be a muhajir, to see that it means uh, potentially a non-Muslim, uh, what we might say, economic migrant now, or we might say colonist now. Right. So that's sort of one truth that emerges when we look at these kind of different depictions. Another thing that emerges, emerges I think, as we, as we look at this attempt to organize and administer settlement is that some of the very ways in which historians would likely attempt to kind of disaggregate this notion of, of migrant are present in the state's very attempt to, to make this an efficient process. So if, again, things like class. If you had a certain amount of money, you weren't really eligible for aid from the state. If you had uh, different skill sets, that is, if you were sort of more educated or you were a religious figure, you were more likely to be settled in a urban environment, or at least in a town center, or at least that was the ideal. Uh, if you are an unaccompanied woman, the sort of plan would be to have you work in some sort of state-generated capacity, like sewing uniforms for, for the army. So there are these ways in which the state is already beginning to kind of disaggregate what it means to be muhajir in order to best distribute resources. And in that way, again, looking at this kind of institutional history or, or administrative endeavor helps us think about what various experiences 
may have been. Right. And so some of the, the points that come out of that, to, to sort of summarize it, is that the word of, of muhajir within the Ottoman lexicon, it, it, indeed, as you said, it's broader than Muslim in, in many cases, but it does connote a certain permanence of migration, someone who's going to stay, uh, and someone who is implicitly under the uh, jurisdiction of the Ottoman Empire, not just by virtue of the fact of living there, but that their future life in this new land they've come to uh, will be, to some extent, dictated uh, through the policies derived by the uh, migrant commissions that, that determine where and how people will be settled. Yeah, and I think, I mean, your point about sort of permanence, I think, is, is a very useful way to, to try and gain some sort of coherence when we think about this category. This is some sort of permanent or ideally permanent settlement. The only thing I would add is that we um, is that they're also using the term to describe people who have left as well right. uh, in a semi-permanent Permanently way. gone. Permanently gone. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So permanence is more important than sort of um, the fact that they have sought, um, I guess, refuge or, or mm -hmm. that they are now subjects of the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. So would you agree with the statement that the Ottoman officials, on the basis of the political context that they've been kind of dragged into in the second half of the 19th century, they just re-Islamized the concept of Mahajir. Okay, yeah, so this is a really interesting question. I think um, certainly, again, you know, individuals like uh, Kemal Karpat and Bashak Kale have certainly seen a narrowing mm -hmm. of the meaning of Mahajir, particularly in the Hamidian period. Mm -hmm. I do think there's some truth to that. I mean, I think you can look again at these administrative endeavors and certainly see articulated within them, first of all, the sultan's role as mm -hmm. caliph. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see as well this idea that migrants and Muslim migrants in particular, especially following that 1877 to 1878 war, mm -hmm. are ways to or are used as ways to change the demographic balance right. in particular areas. Mm -hmm. Whether or not they, whether or not the Ottoman state could always sort of do this on border areas, it could at least do it in the in, interior. Mm -hmm. uh, or even uh, I, I've seen documents that suggest, you know, these migrants are leaving, let's say Bulgaria, uh, and it's sort of like Bulgaria's loss is our gain. Mm -hmm. These courageous Muslims have have left Bulgaria and are coming here and sort of are are contributing to the benefit of the Islamic State. But I don't think it's the only mm -hmm. thing going on here. So again, if we, this is where I, I think it's very useful to sort of move away from from the notion of refugee and to, right. or, or at least conceive of muhajir as something that, again, can sort of incorporate this element of, of colonizer. Mm -hmm. And it's merely just at various moments, what is the kind of ideal colonizer? Mm -hmm. Whereas in 1857, the ideal colonizer was anybody who had some capital and was willing to come. Yeah, I think increasingly that sort of definition narrows uh, as to who is the ideal, especially because there are plenty of Muslims right. coming. Right. right. So Muhajir is kind of the site of the making of the modern subject and then citizen of the Ottoman Empire, in a way, is what you're saying. And, and when we use the word colonizer here, we have to remember that in 19th century, colonizing was, was not used in the pejorative sense that it is today, right? <laughs> we're not, but you know, what we're really talking about is 
people who are serving the interest of states that are all, to various extents, operating on a physiocratic logic, meaning that the maximum use of land is for agricultural production and that right. that is to be the ultimate goal of the empire. So maybe we need to backtrack a little bit to this whole shift from, as you said, municipal and police ministries administering migrants to the creation of a separate commission by looking at the effort to channel migrants away from the cities like Istanbul into the countryside and, and specifically to find parts of the provinces of the Ottoman Empire with either sparse population or room that could a room of or land that could be cultivated uh, and how the economic goals of the empire, leaving aside those other demographic engineering goals, um, sort of play into the way in which migrants are administered. Yeah, certainly. And, and I guess I would say, again, I mean, not to not to keep harping on this like sort of 1857 moment, but even that 1857 uh, moment is, is also employing, I think, uh, officials from the sort of uh, war ministry, I guess we could say, to likewise go out into the countryside and begin to, to survey land and to then inform uh, the central state as to its availability. And Basically, throughout the period in question, this doesn't change. What changes is the extent to which land is available and the perhaps changing definition of, of who is best able to use it. Uh, I know something your research has touched on, Chris, uh, and, and my research has revealed something somewhat similar, is the ways in which... Um, Ottoman officials were, I mean, they were looking for land that's available and they're looking for land that is also sort of suitable, that is arable, that is maybe just sort of hospitable on the one sense in the 1860s, but increasingly it's not only hospitable, but is, but is ideal for certain sets of, of migrants depending on their place of origin or their sort of particular ethnicity. Even if you're not sort of placing migrants just for this kind of agricultural component, if you're placing them there for security, we see a distinction between the use of, say, Crimean Tatars or individuals from the Balkans who are seen to be these more settled, potentially uh, developed or advanced technologically mm -hmm. uh, individuals versus um, individuals from the Caucasus who are, who are seen to be sort of more in need of, of settlement, but sort of ultimately more I guess warlike and Marshall, therefore yeah. martial, yeah, precisely, and and therefore more useful in kind of of taming some of the frontiers of of Southeast Anatolia that you've uh, written about. Right. I mean, that's an important thing to point out that some of the migrants in question are sort of fleeing from the most economically productive parts of the Ottoman Empire in Eastern Europe, whereas you know, as you said, others are coming from real frontier zones where uh, you know they're own migration is only a consequence of, say, the Russian state attempting to really put its foot down in this region for the first time. So very different, coming out of very different contexts in many cases. So this particular moment, especially post-1857 context, what we see in the Ottoman administration, the general administration, is also like big reforms regarding how to govern the empire, particularly the vilayets. So I was wondering whether the coming in population was complementary to these reforms from 
the point of view of Istanbul or was it at odds? Sure. So I'll just, um, maybe I'll, I'll answer yes to both components of the, of yes, the question. Of course. So, okay, ways in which it was, it was complicating this effort are obviously, I mean, this is a, throughout the period, it's a huge expense over mm -hmm. and over and over again that necessarily are kind of undermining the resources with which the state might attempt to kind of do things like expand um, schools, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. to, use a, to use the same very, uh, to use the same example, I guess, would be also uh, how is it complementary? It's complementary in the sense that, that creating all these sort of individual migrant settlements in the 1870s and 1880s mm -hmm. sort of creates a very logical placement of new schools right. and school infrastructure. And, and so that kind of tension, I think, exists in multiple capacities. Mm -hmm. The Ottoman officials also learn over time how to deal with this as they kind of bring in the, the institutions, the other sorts of institutions, more, more likely what we maybe can call, or, or what we can call like a or like welfare institutions, like hospitals. If we look at the Tanzimat and Hamidian periods and things like the reorganization of the vilayets uh, or the land laws of uh, 1858, this is all I think you can sort of map it onto this attempt to better know the population, right? right? And again, when you think about uh, millions of people coming in, some of whom stay put after you put them in place, and some mm -hmm. of whom continue uh, to died. to roam the countryside, and some who, yeah, many, many of whom died, die, yeah. uh, we we can see these as various state failures. But uh, if you look at it from that sort of governmental perspective, sometimes failure is a route, or the articulation of failure is a route to continue to extend uh, infrastructure and whatnot into the countryside or, or into various locations. And so what I would mean by that is, again, if you look at these settlement projects, you can see sort of increasingly granular and detailed information emerging about migrants in this kind of idealized attempt to place them, to cater to their needs, to determine the exact amount of land necessary for them to survive and ultimately become productive citizens. I mean, you have, uh, I mean, this was true in the 1860s as well, that you have sort of the development of, of or you have the drawing up of, of ideal uh, arrangements of, of housings or of housing or like an urban grid kind of but I, I think it becomes uh, sort of increasingly successful in that sort of way that we see a lot of this stuff that, that began in the Tanzimat sort of becoming more extended and, and sort of more successful, you could say, in the Hamidian period. I think the same is true for the very projects that the state is engaging in with these migrants. <laughs> Bağlamam 
Welcome back to the Autumn History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Sechel Yilmaz here with Ella Fratentuono talking about her research on migration during the late Ottoman period. You know, I want to tell our listeners that the conditions of this recording are very particular. <laughs> of course, the Autumn History Podcast is a nomadic podcast. We've recorded in many places and we can record just about anywhere where there's no background music or loud pulsating noises, which in Istanbul isn't as easy as it sounds sometimes. Uh, but in this episode, we're actually recording what might become a, a series of interviews sort of at the bedside of our own Sechil Yilmaz. Sechil, unfortunately, was in a serious bus accident, the details of which we won't get into. And we're very glad she's okay. We're very glad she wore her seatbelt. I'm very happy to be here, um, even though um, I'm a little immobile, yeah. as opposed to our millions of Mohajirs within the history. I'm looking forward to be back on my feet, but I'm very happy to be part of this podcast today. Yeah, we're very glad that Sechel is all right. And she, while she is uh, nursing her injuries uh, in bed rest over the next couple of weeks, we've got to take the podcast to her. Um, but, uh, you know, Sechel has still been productive, even while she's out of commission, so to speak, not able to do all the traveling and archive visits that she wanted to do. Thanks to my Ottoman History Podcast team friends um, for their um, generous donations of Tanzimat novels, which kept me very busy during my recovery process, uh, helped me to read um, Tashiki Talat and Fitnat and uh, Nabizad Nazim Zehra and a bunch of um, Ahmed Hamdi Tampanar's novels. So um, although I was away from the archives, um, I feel like I was very close to um, social fabric of the late Ottoman Empire, um, right. even more close. And after hearing about her experience reading all these novels in this very condensed period, there's some that I'm looking forward to reading myself, and especially uh, this uh, set of novels, I guess, that begins with Mahur Beste by Ahmed Hamdi Tampanar. So I have a question. Um, during this reading period, it was really interesting, especially in the context of Ahmed Hamdi Tampanar novels, the trilogy tr- uh, of um, Beste and Sahnin Dışındakiler and then Huzur. Ahmed Hamdi brings in Mohajir as a typology in the Ottoman, late Ottoman Istanbul. And it's an element of the society and he talks a lot about it. He, it is a character in urban life. So outside of its conceptual and institutional context, what was a muhajir for an everyday life for Ottoman citizens? Well, okay, so my resource has mostly engaged with with state sources. So I'm eager to hear more about uh, what Tan Pinar has has written and, and the fruits of your of your novel reading. But what I I guess what I, I could say is I, I think there are certain tropes evident within the state sources or, or within, say, uh, the British sources that might lend themselves to understanding how, how sort of your everyday Ottoman mm-hmm. interpreted, interpreted muhajirs. Uh, and again, I mean, I think, first of all, it is important to keep in mind, I think there were other factors uh, at play. For example, uh, we talked a little bit about this kind of martial stereotype of, of mm-hmm. the Cherkes right. or what have you. So I, th- to, I think to some extent what we have to think about is, is whether we can say for all 
Ottomans, there would have been a kind of ideal trope of, of the muhajir as such, or if it would have been very much informed by sort of the specific group that, that had kind of settled down mm-hmm. in the neighboring village, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, aside from that kind of martial component, the other comment I'll make is that eventually you see people, again, within petitions and elsewhere kind of making their own claims to be a migrant mm-hmm. with the notion or with the idea that that comes with certain resources or maybe resources blending into rights. Right. And a, a good example of that, I think, is, I mean, for, I mean, first of all, there are petitions, of course, but then as we move into sort of the second constitutional period, for mm-hmm. example, you actually see the development of um, sort of ethnically-based aid societies, again, for, right. for Circassian, for example. Right. But then also ones that, that do take up the sort of notion or label of Muhajir itself. Um, mm-hmm. So a nice one that Chris told me about a couple of years ago uh, is this newspaper Muhajir mm-hmm. itself. Um, let me see if I can remember the name of the society that, that printed Muhajir. It was the Rumeli Islamie Muhajir in right. Jamieti, right? The right. Society for, for Eastern Rumelian Muhajirs. Mm-hmm. So something that's interesting there is that, of course, they aren't necessarily conceiving of muhajir as something that encapsulates as well the, the mm-hmm. Caucasus experience. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, they are using the word muhajir sort of self-consciously, making that reference to uh, the kind of religious significance of the term right? Uh, very, from the very first issue. Mm-hmm. But then they're, they're using this platform to kind of, again, articulate to the state times at which... Um, Officials have, have fallen short of providing the necessary resources. Right. But they are also, in, in many of their issues, I mean, doing something very similar to what I see officials doing in the sense of kind of thinking of, of migrants as this tool or vector for remaking the ideal Ottoman society. And again, that can be because sort of these migrants from from uh, from the Balkans are... are more technologically advanced. Mm-hmm. But it can also be because they are, again, sort of more available for for resources like education, that, again, they can kind of be catered to first and then kind of deployed in, right. in the creation of a, of a better Ottoman society, right. a more fair Ottoman right. Recruited into the yeah. Ottoman modernity. Right. Precisely, in the making. yeah. Right. Yeah, but so that doesn't really answer your question of what the everyday right, individual right. thought of muhajirs, and and I think that that's a wonderful avenue as I continue to reframe my dissertation into an actual uh, actual book project. I think that that's a wonderful yeah, we're angle to take. Forward to reading more. Whatever I write. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, there in asking that question, it's interesting to think about how the ways in which uh, the Ottoman government chose to govern migration impacted the formation of that identity because in the United States, the United States a country, of course, the troop is a country of immigrants. Uh, everyone came from somewhere else almost except for the Native American population. May have been voluntary, may have been involuntary, but we all share that history of migration. And yet, you know, if you look at the policies regarding migrants in the U.S., there are, you know, whether assimilation policies and the, and the various types of institutions that were used to address uh, incoming migrants, you realize that the, the U.S. government response actually really shaped the ultimate self-identification 
uh, of migrant communities, the ways in which they either preserved or did not preserve certain markers of past ethnic identities and the way in which those were articulated. So I'm really curious, you know, the Ottomans handled their migrants differently in some ways from the United States and other uh, empires of the period. So do you have any examples of, of how that plays out? Of how? Well, I mean, I think that's, that's a very complicated question if only because, you know, I, I very conveniently end my my sort of topic, uh, 1910. Right. And, of course, the very next decade is characterized by perhaps even sort of larger or more concentrated migrations. Mm-hmm. It's characterized by the end of the Ottoman Empire yep. and the beginning of the Turkish Republic. So, I, I, And in turn, the, an, in, an even more concentrated effort to employ those migrants towards a specific political project. So an intensification in a way of the processes you look at. One more way to think about this, again, is I think all these categories sort of, particularly in terms of print or or, or the written word, gain particular meanings uh, when they are attached to resources. Um, and and such before I think brought up the sort of idea of like a a welfare state that's being developed, uh, or or not a welfare state, but but the distribution of of uh, or attempt to create welfare, and the attachment of of certain resources I think again makes this a term that is is very useful to mobilize. Something I've only begun to look at is the extent to which uh, individuals were sort of applying for recognition to be. Muhajirs, in order to then be recognized as well or just sort of receive the official mm-hmm. paperwork of, of being an Ottoman subject. Right. Um, so again, I, yeah, I mean, my research continue, needs to sort of continue to, to engage with, with this question of, of, of how migrants' self-identification emerged potentially from sort of administrative categories. But nevertheless, I think the beginnings are there within within state records, mm-hmm. uh, even though the rest of the story certainly remains to be researched and told. Right. You see it definitely in petitions, for example. The way, the language that people use to argue for the things they want to receive often almost too uncannily mirror the discourse of the state <laughs> as it changes from the Hamidian right. period to sort right. of you know, emphasizing the Islamic component to the post-1908 period, emphasizing like constitutionalism. You see how migrants very quickly adapt to that. Uh, and it really you know, brings a deeper context to present-day refugee situations. You know, If we see how Iraqi refugees from the U.S. invasion of Iraq and now Syrian refugees right. may either choose to register or not register mm-hmm. as refugees for various reasons, mm-hmm. for the various or to identify that way for various reasons mm-hmm. because of what comes with that label in the administrative and legal framework to sort of take that history back to what for the Middle East was really the beginning of this uh, history of displacement that has been almost, you know, it's it's been cyclical, but it's been pretty steady since the, the mid-19th century up until uh, today and, and the changing regime surrounding displacement, um, I think is, is, is really a really productive endeavor. And to sort of excavate the history of the category surrounded migration without projecting back our present day categories and words that we use to describe these phenomena and all of the uh, institutional baggage they come with um, is even uh, a greater contribution. So, sure, I think we need to 
um, always avoid the tendency to become sort of our own uh, officials of, of asylum, basically, to avoid the temptation to sort of excavate the reasons why people came, if only to apply the label of, of refugee right. or, or forced migrant to their right. to their movement. To posthumously yeah. advocate on their behalf as historians, <laughs> as if we know um, what the proper way in any moment to, so quote unquote, manage uh, the problem of my of displacement is. All right, Ella, well, it's been great having you on. This has added uh, yet another episode to our many installments that indirectly have touched on the topic we've talked about in various ways. Yeah, and thank you so much for having me. Uh, I can't wait to listen to this and continue to think about sort of the provocative questions and directions you guys have, have provided for me as I continue to work on the project. And thank you, Sacha, thank you for, for hosting us, <laughs> for hosting us <laughs> and uh, providing the space. And I want to remind our listeners that they can be part of the conversation too. We've got a Facebook group with over 30,000 followers and some of them will probably be game to discuss and debate some of the things we've talked about. And of course, Ella will be able to see those comments and questions. Also got our blog, autumnhistorypodcast.com, where you can leave comments there. Also find a lot of great episodes related to today's topic uh, and a really hefty bibliography about the theme of migration in the Ottoman Empire constructed by none other than Ella Fratentuono. That's all for this episode. Thanks for tuning in and join us next time in a future installment of Ottoman History Podcast. Mm-hmm.